Ephesians chapter 6 at verse 14. This is God's inerrant and infallible word. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And we'll stop our reading there this morning. May God bless it in our lives. Well, I can't remember how many times I've heard people say, especially in recent months and weeks, it all depends on who you're listening to. And you've probably been in discussions like that as well, and and that's what you realize. It all depends who you're listening to. Well, of course, that's always the case, isn't it? It depends who you're listening to. And because that's true, all the more reason then for us this morning, by God's grace, to see the importance and the blessing of this next piece of spiritual armor that God has provided for you as a Christian and for us as the Christian church. Verse 17, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Beloved, what a blessing to know that in the Bible you can listen to God. It all depends on who you're listening to, doesn't it? As we take or receive or welcome the helmet of salvation here in verse 17, the apostle goes on, and, and so the verb is assumed again, I think, take, receive, welcome, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. This last piece of armor is called a sword. That's the imagery. There were a couple of different Greek words for sword that are used in the New Testament. This word in particular is the, refers to the sharp, short sword that was most often used in close quarter battle for a soldier. But that sword, that metaphorical sword, is explained to us as a sword in this spiritual armor of God that is intimately connected with the Spirit of God. It is the sword of the Spirit. And it is a sword which is in fact, and here uh, the apostle identifies for us clearly, we don't want to say, well, could it be this, might it be that? Here we see that it is in fact a sword which is the word of God, the word of God, that which God has spoken, God's special 
revelation here, culminating in Jesus, the Word made flesh, but the Word written down for the church in the Bible. Because it's only in the Bible that we infallibly and inerrantly get to know Jesus, the Word made flesh. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, this piece of armor is mentioned last in the list, and any student of Scripture wonders why. We wonder about the order, and some things are mentioned first, and we say, well, that's just always because of the importance of it, or maybe it's mentioned last to save the most important for last. And so, you know, we can wonder and, and think about these things, and many people have. Why is the sword of the Spirit mentioned last? Or in other words, what is the connection with the other pieces of armor? Well, I think there are a couple of, of uh, things that we might be able to say helpfully. The Word of God, the last thing mentioned, is in a sense the foundation of all the other pieces of armor that we've mentioned. The Word of God, and you can see how it's the foundation for the belt of truth, and how it's the foundation uh, for the breastplate of righteousness, uh, the gospel, the shield of faith, how the word of God has to be foundational to all of those other things. But it also, perhaps, some have suggested, is last because it follows the rest because the sword of the Spirit can only be safely used when the other pieces of armor are in place. The word of God is only safely used and used with blessing when it's used in the context of a person's life where that context is the gospel and faith and salvation. And it's then as a Christian that you take up the sword of the spirit. And so you can see those other things need to be in place, the devil can use the scripture he did in the wilderness, but it can only be safely used with blessing when these other things are in place by God's grace. Many have also commented on the sword and the imagery of the sword here uh, being especially uh, a weapon used as a weapon of attack instead of something for defense. Uh, in a way, all the parts of the armor, and especially what they represent spiritually, have both a defensive and an offensive aspect. Uh, the shield can be used for defense, but you can also use it against an enemy as well. And so they can be both. But the sword, as one writer said, is the most conspicuously offensive weapon. It's what you use to go forward spiritually. This is what is especially suited to defeat and to conquer and to see victory accomplished in life. And just a note here at the outset, and we'll see how that works out. A sword does those things by killing. A sword does that by killing. The, the phrase to put to the sword that we come across many times in Scripture, to put to the sword. 
doesn't mean to scare someone or even uh, to injure them, but to kill someone. And we'll see how that is really appropriate spiritually in several ways. And so here's the sword, the last piece of armor connected to the other pieces. Uh, can be used defensively, but especially offensively. And it's a deadly weapon, a deadly weapon. And so just two things this morning as we come to this last piece of armor. First, the nature of this sword as it's revealed here. And then the use of this sword, the nature of it and the use of it. Well, first, the nature of the sword. It is the sword of the Spirit. And this reminds us again that what we are engaged here in is spiritual warfare. It is spiritual warfare. This is the sword of the Spirit. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 4. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. You see, it's a spiritual battle, and so the weapons are spiritual. It's the sword of the Spirit. Now, the Bible tells us that the state has a sword. That's a literal sword. It's figuratively literal. It doesn't have to be a sword. But Romans 13, 4 tells us, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. The state is given under God and responsible to God corporal force, even to the point of capital punishment. And so that's something that we see in terms of thinking about swords that is biblical but not the church, not the church. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. There are religions that have grown and conquered at the point of a real sword, but not the church. Ours is a spiritual battle. And though the enemy may use many physical and material means to attack and intimidate and persecute, our response, our response must never be in the same kind, in the same way. This is the sword of the spirit. This is spiritual warfare. And it is the sword of the spirit more especially because he forged it. For us, all scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. The sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, because the Bible comes to us from the Spirit of God. Prophecy, 2 Peter 1, never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the sword of the Spirit is the sword that he's given us. And so it bears qualities of that divine origin. The Bible is 
inerrant and infallible and authoritative. It is the ultimate word of divine warning and divine life because it comes from the Spirit of God. And because it's the sword of the Spirit uh, and comes from God, the devil will always try to attack the Bible. Has God really said? If he can do that, all's lost. But the Bible is its own defense. It's the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. In a sermon entitled Christ and His Co-Workers in 1886, Charles Spurgeon said, Suppose a number of persons were to take it into their heads that they had to defend a lion, the full-grown king of the beasts. There he is in the cage. And here come all the soldiers of the army to fight for him. Well, I should suggest to them, if they would not object and feel that it was not humbling to them, that they should just stand back and open the door and let the lion out. I believe that would be the best way of defending him, for he would take care of himself. And the best apology for the gospel is to let the gospel out. This is the sword of the Spirit, because it's his own forged weapon. Second, it is the Spirit's sword, because though we use it, he must wield it. Now, that may be a fine distinction, but we use the word of God. God has given it to us. But the Holy Spirit must make it effective in our hands. John Owen said, without the Holy Spirit, we might as well burn our Bibles. Watch out for the Spirit without the Word. Sometimes Christians try to live that way. I follow the Spirit. I don't need the Bible. Well, you can be following all kinds of spirits then. How do you test the spirits without the Bible? Watch out for the Spirit without the Word. Why would the Spirit not use his own sword? And, and this may be more true of some of us, watch out for the Word without the Spirit. We need to pray whenever we open the Word. We need to be utterly dependent upon the Spirit as we use the Word in our own lives and wherever else we may seek to use it. We use the Word, but the Spirit himself must wield it and make it effective. Acts 7.51, You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has to open ears. And especially 1 Corinthians 2. What we have received is not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness 
and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. With a new heart comes new eyes and new ears. Ultimately, it must be the Spirit that wields his own sword. But also thirdly, this sword of the Spirit, the sword must be used in a spiritual way. It must be used in a spiritual way. And one of the ways that that uh, is appropriate is that whenever we use the word, we should always remember to be pointing clearly to Christ. Wherever we are in the Bible, wherever we're talking to people from the Bible, we should be making sure we are pointing to Christ. It's the sword of the Spirit. And the Spirit's ministry is to point to Christ, isn't it? Jesus says in John 16, 14 of the Spirit, he will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. There are many things in the Bible that we need to know and talk about. It touches upon many things, but it all must point to Christ. It all must be seen in relation to Christ and in the light of Christ, and that is to use the Bible in a spiritual way because that's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And all Scripture speaks of Jesus. He said, everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. Our preaching, teaching, witnessing must always be, our use of the sword of the Spirit must always be Christ-centered. That is why Paul, that is what Paul meant, even as he preached, he says, the whole counsel of God, It's not reductionistic. He preached the whole counsel of God. And yet, at the same time, he could say in 1 Corinthians 2, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Because that's the the focal point to which all the scripture points. There's also another way to use the Bible spiritually. If you're trying to follow along, I apologize. This is points and subpoints, I know. But hopefully you're seeing it. it's just the sword of the Spirit. What does that mean, that it's the sword of the Spirit? The sword must be used in a spiritual way in that it should always be used in a Spirit-filled way. A Spirit-filled way. You know, a sword is a dangerous weapon. And it can be used for harm as well as blessing. Again, the sword of the Spirit is most safely used by those who have the fruit of the Spirit in their lives. Love. Have you ever used the Bible without love? Joy. Peace. Forbearance. Kindness. Goodness. Faithfulness gentleness, self-control. Do you see how important it is? This is the sword of the Spirit. And you try to use it sometimes not in a Spirit-filled way. You use it with a, without the fruit of the Spirit in your life and clear to the person that you're dealing with. It's a sword of the Spirit, and the Spirit works his good fruit in Christians. And that's, that's the goal, that's the purpose, that's the, 
the great good that we would use the sword of the Spirit as Spirit-filled, fruit of the Spirit-filled Christians. The sword of the Spirit must be used offensively. And it will be an offense to many because of Christ. But we must not be personally offensive as we use it. The nature of the sword. But secondly, we consider the use of this sword. The use of this sword. It's the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. What a blessing to have it, to, to take it and welcome it and receive it. But how do you use it? The use of this sword. The first use of this sword is for conviction. Conviction. Anything compared to a sword should get our attention. If, we, if we've ever come close to a sword, a real sword, not a Nerf sword, kids, but a real sword, anything compared to a sword should get our attention. And, and think in particular that the sword here in this spiritual armor of God is a word sword. It's a word sword. I'm just noticing that the word word is even in the word sword in English. It's a word sword. Words are like swords, aren't they? When I was thinking about a sword being God's word, I couldn't help but think of how our words can be like swords as well. But so often for sin and misery. You know the Psalms, you know the, the, the passages probably, Psalm 59, 7. See what they spew from their mouths. The words from their lips are sharp as swords. And they think, who can hear us? Or Proverbs 12, 18, the words of the reckless pierce like swords. The little kid's rhyme says, sticks and stones may break my bones, but names can never hurt me. Words are like swords. The first use of the sword of the Spirit must be against our own sin. And how often that sin is in the things that we say. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Have you been hurtful with your words? Stabbing other people. Jabbing, slicing, hacking words. That sin must be put to death. Remember, swords kill. But what a blessing that we read in Hebrews 4. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit and joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. 
When we come to the sword of the Spirit and the use of this sword, and swords remind us of our sin and the sins of our speech, the first use of the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, has to be in our own hearts. Doesn't it? Doesn't it? To convict of sin. To come before God and say, have mercy on me, the sinner. To come in repentance before God as you sit under that sharp two-edged sword. That's why a lot of people don't like coming to worship, coming to church. A church where the Bible is preached. Do you want a sharp two-edged sword? Jabbing into your heart? People don't like that, so they don't go. They don't come. We had friends who just found a, a very nice church that didn't preach the Bible, and the fellow just said to me, it's great, spirituality without the guilt. But the sword of the Spirit pierces, and it needs to pierce us first in the conviction of our sin. And how wonderful that the sword of the Spirit can be used by the Spirit to kill, to convict us of sin, and by God's grace to kill our self-righteousness, to have the old man by faith crucified with Christ. And not to leave it there, but secondly, the use of the sword is not just the use of conviction, but the use of salvation for salvation. The same sword that kills makes alive. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. And you see in the gospel, this sharp sword, to change the metaphor a little bit, puts the old man to death in the gospel, in salvation. But in the gospel, the sword then becomes like a surgeon's scalpel, which is sharp, and it cuts, but it's for good and for healing and for life and for blessing. So the same sharp sword of the Spirit that puts the old man to death is the words of eternal life. And where else can we go? What a blessing to have words of life and blessing. And they're in Jesus Christ, the living word come down from heaven. And then this sword that saves us by the Spirit is the same sword that he gives us to use in our own lives. Christ used the word, didn't he, against the devil's temptation as our Savior. He always wielded the word. He always, he always wielded, it is written perfectly as the Lord our righteousness. But in that, he also does give us an example to use the word of God, the sword of the Spirit, to counteract the devil's schemes. And we use it in all kinds of ways against the fears and doubts that the devil loves to come at us with. What do you use? 
the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Psalm, you use Psalm 56.3. You draw Psalm 56.3 out of, out of the scabbard. And, and you say, when I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise. In God, I trust and I am not afraid. What can man do to me? The sword of the Spirit used in our lives as Christians. Again, we use that sword against remaining sin. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you, said Samuel Rutherford. That's sanctification. Killing sin and being made more and more alive to God. But also, as we go forward into the enemy territory of the fallen world, we use the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. In our witness to the world, our evangelism, only the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, will do the job. Charles Hodge said, People have tried to use, even Christians at times, have tried to use other swords. Swords of rationalism, scientism, traditionalism, the commandments of men. They may look like good swords, but they're insufficient and even dangerous to try to use. On the History Channel, I think it's the History Channel, there's a, there's a show that uh, was quite interesting uh, to me for several reasons. It's called Forged in Fire. Forged in Fire. They get blacksmiths from all across the United States, sometimes I think even across the world, who come together and they have to forge weapons. Uh, sometimes even weapons that we read of in the New Testament, like the, the, the Romphaya, the longer sword. I watched an episode They have to forge these weapons. Often the weapons are swords. And when they come back from their forges, they present their swords. And most of the time, almost all the time, uh, they look good. They, They look perfect, beautiful, seemingly sharp and strong. But then the blades are tested in all kinds of ways, three different tests. They're tested. And many of those swords, which looked so good, bend and snap and shatter and sometimes injure the people that are doing the tests. What a blessing to have the sword of the Spirit. No other sword is sufficient for spiritual battle in the world. We must use the sword of the Spirit. But know this, if we brandish the sword of the Spirit as we live our lives, the enemy will be roused for battle. You come up up at someone and you raise your fists like this, they're going to probably raise their fists too. You draw out the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God in your life, and the devil will be roused to battle. Sometimes we say in our lives, we need to lay down the sword, lay down our swords. And in some contexts, that's appropriate. We want to be peacemakers. We want to avoid unnecessary, unbiblical conflict and confrontation. And it's the good part of being the peacemaker that we lay down, we're the first to lay down our sword. But God gives us a sword here 
his word. And we are not permitted to lay it down to make peace. That's a false peace. God gives us this sword to use. And it will bring opposition. There will be a spiritual battle against Christ, the living word, and against the written word, the Bible. On January 25th, just a few weeks ago, there was an article, the headline was, Finnish government puts Christianity on trial, calls the Bible hate speech. First line of the article, two Christian leaders in Finland stood trial in Helsinki on January 24th for publicly stating the Bible's teachings on sex and marriage. Longtime member of parliament, Kaivi Rasinen, and Lutheran bishop, Johanna Pajola, defended in court their decision to write and publish, respectively, a pamphlet explaining Christian teachings about sex and marriage. That very clearly is a battle on that issue with the sword of the Spirit. And the devil is fighting back. Now, of course, here, I don't want to avoid what many people are thinking about, and we have questions, and even as we're thinking here about battle and spiritual warfare and attacks and counterattacks, of course, here in Ottawa this past weekend, we've seen much conflict and opposition. How does that relate to, to, to what we're dealing with here, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God? I want to be very careful. It's, it's unreasonable, most often, to generalize. And just to make it very, you know, black and white, uh, we like that. We want clear sides often. We want it just to be very clear and definitive so that we just say to people, are you pro-trucker or pro-government? Which one? Pick one. So I can know if I can be for you or again you. Are you pro-police or anti-police? Make a choice. Most often things aren't that way. Lots of different levels, generalizations are inappropriate and often uh, irrational and immature. We shouldn't do it. And there can be individuals involved in all kinds of different ways. So be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to become angry with these things. We want those clear sides often. And even, sadly, these things are dividing Christians. Maybe we have more to learn about the schemes of the devil than we realize. There's too much to consider, I know. And believe me, I hesitated even addressing this. Much easier not to. There's too much to consider on all levels and angles. But usually I respond when people say, are you pro this or anti this or that or that? I say, I'm pro Christ. I'm pro Christ. I'm a Christian. And our battle is not against flesh and blood. That's what we're taught here. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. I think we should thank God that there are Christians in government, 
I thank God for the Christians that are there. I'm not going to just say every member of parliament is an evil so-and-so because there are brothers and sisters in Christ there. I thank God there are Christians in government. I thank God there are Christians in the police force. I thank God that there are Christians among the protesters. All of these believers being salt and light and witness-bearing and doing good and used in some way to restrain evil in all those different places. But I think it is also good for us to remember that what we've been seeing in Ottawa this last little while, in many ways is a battle of humanism against humanism. That's what characterizes quite a bit of what's going on here. There is no Christian being persecuted in Ottawa this weekend explicitly because he's a Christian and for the sake and name of the Lord Jesus Christ that I know of anyway, for what I know, and from what I've seen. To a large degree, what is there, and I think this is where we need to take a step back and remember who we are as Christians and as the church. A lot of what was going on was a battle of humanism against humanism. The devil's house is always a house divided against itself. And in many ways, what we're seeing is a predominantly, and I'm not exclusive, a predominantly humanistic government that wants to be a law unto themselves, battling against a humanistic culture that wants to be a law unto themselves. That's a lot of the conflict. It's not all I know, but it's a lot of it. A parliament that predominantly rejoices over Bill C-4 is not Christian. And just because a crowd shouts freedom doesn't mean it's Christian. You have to ask, what does freedom mean? What do you mean when you yell freedom like William Wallace? What did William Wallace mean when he yelled freedom? What do you mean? Should we march for freedom? Maybe. Maybe. Are you pro-freedom? Maybe. Because... And to, to think about that, just change the word freedom to choice, which is a fair substitute. And I think you'd see the point. Are you pro-freedom? Are you pro-choice? Very different things. There's a fascinating passage in Joshua chapter 5. When Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. 
And Joshua went up and asked him, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither. Neither. That to me is one of the most surprising responses I read in the Bible. Joshua, Moses' successor, leading the people of God into the promised land. Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither. Joshua was asking in the wrong way, obviously. There was something wrong in Joshua's thinking. Neither, he replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord. This is the pre-incarnate Christ. I have now come. And Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, what message does my Lord have for his servant? We need to be very slow and urge others to be slow to try to co-opt God for our agendas instead of humbly submitting ourselves to his agenda. Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither. I'm the commander of the host of the Lord. The sword we have been given is the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. And it is for his cause, for Christ's crown and cause, for the growth of the church in the world. Beloved, that will bring conflict enough. And it is a conflict we must never shy away from. Again, we need to to look around history and we need to look around the world and in the scriptures. And what we're seeing today, we need to learn and be prepared. For when, if by God's grace not, but for when, Persecution will come to the church as the church. When you will be persecuted as a Christian, then how are you going to use the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God? And how are you going to use it in a Spirit-filled way? If you should suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled insults, their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. That's wielding the sword of the spirit in a spiritual way. But it will bring conflict. Don't be afraid and don't be ashamed to use the sword of the Spirit. For I am not ashamed of the gospel because of the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. For in the righteous, the gospel of the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as is written, the righteous will live by faith. Don't be ashamed of the sword even though it brings conflict. Charles Hodge again said, in opposition to all error, to all false philosophy, to all false morals, to all vice, to all suggestions of the devil, the sole, simple, sufficient answer is the word of God. The word of God.
I still have half a sermon left. Let's, let's just end there for this morning and pray that God would help us to think properly and biblically about these things.